And the reason I think we need folks in the radical middle is to be the people who say, actually, that's not what we believe. That's not the country we want to live in. And we're willing to do the work that humanizes both Democrats and Republicans, CEOs and somebody who's working on the line, somebody who has resources and somebody who doesn't. We're going to humanize them both and we're going to find ways to widen the circle of human concern where both of them are humanized. But the notion that we're gonna live in a zero sum game and some people are expendable and others are not is something that just has to be off the table. And I think those committed to the radical middle, that's gonna be our job over the next century. Welcome to The Dialogue. In this episode of the Dialogue Podcast, ALF Silicon Valley CEO Suzanne St. John Crane sits down with author, activist, and faith leader Reverend Ben McBride for a conversation about his new book, Troubling the Water, The Urgent Work of Radical Belonging. They take a deep dive on the division that seems to permeate every sector of our society, and they discuss the vital work of widening the circle of inclusion and belonging. Enjoy. Well, I'm thrilled to be here to talk to you, Ben McBride, about your book, Troubling the Water, The Urgent Work of Radical Belonging. And I have to tell you, I read it in a weekend. I devoured it like a delicious meal. <laughs> I did. It was just like, this is this feeds my soul, you know, truly did. Um, and your stories, your discoveries are so in line with the work we're, we're discovering in our ALF fellows classes and our senior fellow dialogues, right? So, I mean, for, for me, just personally speaking, it was, your book reminded me that ALF is part of this broader emergence, this broader movement that's happening. Uh, we're not alone, we're on the right track, and there is there is support, and there's other great folks like yourself working on this. So thank you for bringing it into the world. So great, so glad to be able to be in partnership with y'all, and uh, I really think that ALF is one of the emerging communities that, uh, I think really has a way to help us think about how we go forward. Thank you. First, you know, I want to I want to ask you. This has been your life's work, and you detail it quite quite, you know, um, personally in the book. You know, you share you share your your stories very generously. Uh, what inspired you to sit down and write this book now? Yeah, well, you know, I think over the last several years, I like many of us were finding myself engaged in a lot of social change work, trying to find ways to alleviate some of the challenges that were happening to people. But I think I started really looking ahead towards the future. And I was and am really concerned about where we are in the state of our human experience with each other. Um, I'm really concerned that we are losing our connection to each other. I remember a day when people had different points of view, and yet the difference did not mean that we could not actually relate to one another or actually do things together. I remember that time, and I remember what was possible during that time. And I think because challenges have gotten so big and the tribalism has, I think, even at times gotten bigger, it really made me feel like we needed to pause and really reflect on, is this really the only way that we can try to make the world better. Not that the things that we've been doing are bad, but just for me, it was a question, is this the only way? And more importantly, I was asking myself, is this the right way? So I, I wrote the book because um, not that I'm so much wanting to diminish 
uh, the existing ways, but I really wanted to try to offer what I like to call a third way. Excellent. And, you know, we, I feel like in conversations, whether in fellows program or in our senior fellow circles, I mean, we're all sort of discovering, we're, we're, we're discovering this together, you know, like this can't be all there is. This can't, <laughs> this can't be it. Right. And frankly, and I know you feel this, right. There's another generation coming up that's saying, you know, what, what did you do and what are you going to do? For sure. Yeah. And, and I mean, just, you know, think about it. We reflect and look back on prior generations that preceded us. And we wonder how in the world did they entertain certain things in their society that all of us now are aghast at how these things could exist. And yet, you know, I also wonder what future generations will say about us when they look at the world that we're inhabiting and our inability to, um, you know, treat each other in a uh, humanizing way while disagreeing. The fact that we've got uh, human beings living underneath uh, highways and by the sides of rivers. And there's many of us that have more than what we need. And there's so many who don't have enough. And I think Future generations will look back on us and say, what went wrong about the way that you all were uh, thinking about your story? How, how did this country that is full of so many resources get to a place where it lost its ability for the human beings who have the resources to actually take care of each other and think and see that as a part of what it meant to be human? So um, I, I think what continues to inspire me, though, is that I even amidst all the challenges, I keep seeing people being willing to practice a different way in the middle of what's broken. And so to me, it's about how do we get more, uh, this might be a bad example <laughs> metaphor, but how do we get more gas on that fire? How do we fuel that um, and actually start celebrating the potential of what can be um, and trying to motivate, inspire, resource, support, more people to move in that direction instead of uh, adding more gas to the fire of people pulling at each other, dehumanizing each other, and breaking our world apart. Well, let's let's start at the beginning of the book, which you know I love this story in your introduction, and I think it just sets everything up so so well. You know, the beautiful story of you, you know, coming home, long day of work, right? You're walking up to your front steps, and uh, there's a guy sitting on your stairs again, right? Same dude is sitting there, and in a neighborhood that you just recently moved to. And you had a moment of recognition that it was you that needed to do something differently. And that, to me, that was just so powerful. What what changed for you and what did you learn? Yeah, I mean, I think in that moment, you know, I moved into this neighborhood that had a lot of difficulties in it. And, you know, I think in that story, one of the things I try to explore in the book is how much we think we know what's happening because of what we see, hear, taste, feel, and touch but how we actually need to take another step because oftentimes there's so much more going on than just what we're experiencing in that moment. And in that scenario, I was having a difficult exchange with a neighbor who kept sitting on my porch. And it wasn't until I actually took the time to listen and recognize that the house I was living in was the house he grew up in and recognizing that he was sitting on those stairs because his mom passed away and he was just trying to find a way to reconnect with his mother. But I was only trying to find a way to get inside my house. We both had real needs that needed to be addressed. But the way that I was going about it on the front end was confrontation. It was about leveraging power. It was about leveraging ownership rather than taking another invitation, which was actually to see this human being actually make room for his story. It didn't disappear the fact that I own the house. It didn't disappear the fact that um, we could work together and co-create so that he can ensure I got what I needed. But I also recognized that um, I didn't lose anything by taking time to get him what he needed. 
actually gained something, which was a deeper level of my own humanity. And so my, my invitation around becoming is actually we get something back when we deepen our humanity for one another. Um, we, we get something back when we um, take time to see each other. And that story just continued to be many experiences that kept teaching me. Um, and I'll have to tell you, Suzanne, I, I had to have a lot of lessons because trying to get this through my thick skull took more time than uh, I'd like to imagine. The art of listening, right? And and the um, we talk about this in, in ALF a lot that, you know, when we do this seven minute story exercise in the beginning of our program, mm-hmm. it's with a group of strangers, right? Who are all seasoned executives or people that are uh, accomplished leaders. And when we finally take the time to put our phones down, right? Turn them off and actually hear each other and hear each other's seven minute story. Who, who and what challenges, ups and downs, trauma, what it made you. I, I promise you every year, you know, when I witness that in this program, people walk away changed. And that it's so simple, <laughs> right? But we are a 24-7 culture. We are a go, go, go. Um, there, there isn't um, uh, necessarily a tangible reward for that that we we see until we invest in in that conversation and that kind of an experience. And anybody can do that. Well, I think because it's a part of it, what I hear in, in you all's practice, and I think about it in um, ours as well, is uh, unless we have common language and we have a common story, we actually can't have a collective future. So a part of the work, I think, in, in listening and sharing our stories is uh, let's 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 learn how to talk to each other, but let's also learn how to listen to each other. Let's understand how our stories have collided, sometimes on purpose, sometimes accidentally. But it, it those the collision actually creates the opportunity for us to move forward together. But I can't move forward with you unless I'm willing to first take the time to get to know your story and actually to know it without judgment, mm-hmm. which which is not necessarily about uh, disappearing the fact that we all have strong opinions about different things in our society, but it's actually to hold someone's story in a way that's not about agreement or affirmation, but acknowledgement that this is your lived experience. And I actually want to get time enough to really understand how you're coming towards life because of your experiences. And hopefully I'll be able to share my own and we can find out how that leads us forward. I think if we could do more of that and less of um, trying to see who can have enough power or influence to dominate the other, like I'm only going to listen to your story so that I can uh, use it as evidence to gain superiority or dominance over you. I think if we'll move away from that and move towards uh, the other way being, I think we'll have more success in widening the circle of human concern. Yeah, totally agree with you. Every every fellow that leaves that that circle after that mm-hmm. seven minute story exercise, we look at people differently. Mm-hmm. And I talk about that just going on when you do see the person under the bridge, right? Yeah. Just remember, yeah. they have a seven minute story. I appreciate that. You you talk in your book about a framework of these four quadrants, mm-hmm. which I'd love to learn more about and, and have you talk about the, the powerful, the privileged, the persecuted and prevented. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- where, where do we even begin to emerge from the far recesses of our quadrants and what else is possible once we do? Yeah. I mean, you know, this whole quadrant framework that really started spitting around for me 
started actually several years ago where, you know, myself as, um, you know, for those who are listening, might not be able to hear it. Maybe you can, you know, the, the I'm, a, I'm a big black guy. And so I was in conversation <laughs> with a smaller white guy. We were, we were talking about uh, these dynamics in the world that we were trying to change. And he's from the private sector. And at the time I was in the social change sector. And we were talking about these different dynamics. And I remember uh, him telling me at the time, he said, Ben, it, it seems to me that you can't come to uh, thinking about a problem in the world without injecting the idea of power. And he said, power is not in every scenario. And, you know, I've grown to really love this good brother and we've, we've developed a real strong relationship over the last 10, 15 years. But I told him, I said, actually, you have the privilege to look at the world in a way that does not have to think about power. I said, but as somebody who's belonged to a subordinated community in some parts of my uh, human experience, I have experienced what it looks like to be in a scenario where you don't have power. But I told him, I said, so have you. And, and really, when I think about the quadrant, the reason I've started holding it is because it's not a panacea, but I do think um, in most human interactions, uh, the quadrant framework can be a helpful tool for us to at least analyze uh, where does power live? When I think about the powerful in the quadrant, these are the people who normally set the conditions for how things go. Then you have the privilege. While they don't set the conditions, uh, they benefit from the status quo. Then you have the persecuted who sometimes get some access into, um, you know, agency making decisions. Uh, but other times they are restricted from the circle of human concern. And sometimes they know why, sometimes they don't. And then uh, you have the prevented. And these are people who usually for reasons that are just unique to themselves, they're restricted from agency, from power, uh, from being able to really help to co-create belonging. And and so the thing I like about the, the quadrant framework is that none of us are one thing. Right. When it comes to race as a black person, I'll likely in the story of America end up in the prevented quadrant because of the 400 year history of racism in the United States. But if we're going to talk about gender, I'm going to move from the prevented quadrant to the privileged quadrant because I'm going to benefit from, unfortunately, the presence of sexism and patriarchy. And then if you talk about the company that I started, well, I'm going to move into the powerful quadrant because as the founder, I set the conditions for how things go. I actually think it's a good thing, though, because the fact that I, in different parts of my life, am the powerful, the privileged, and the prevented, it means that I can have some empathy for everyone that lives in one of these quadrants at a given time. And that the powerful don't behave the way that the powerful do just because they want to upset people. But it's a part of how we function. And so what we've tried to do with this framework is invite people to grow in empathy, but also to always recognize that in every human experience that you have, power dynamics are there. And if we're going to get to belonging, it's not going to be from us denying the power dynamics, but actually us understanding them, embracing them, and then making choices about what we do with that power rather than denying the power exists. Yeah. No, that's, that is powerful, <laughs> right? And as you said, I mean, for so many of us, it's seeing, it's understanding, it's sensing, it's seeing it first, like step one, right? <laughs> and I can see, and I understand where I, and, and instead of reacting with a shrinking back, like you talk about in the recesses of this, you know, and, and choosing mm -hmm. to not engage, 
you know, how do we now engage in dialogue and have a common understanding of this so that we know, so that we have empathy, so we can find solutions together, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I appreciate that framework just because it gives us some common language and a starting place. Well, I, I think, too, that the only way that we're going to really move to where it is that we need to go is if we come out of the back corners of our tribal identity and actually begin to create solutions that are informed by all of the different experiences in the quadrant, that the powerful, the privileged, the persecuted, and the prevented all have a unique contribution to us understanding how we widen the circle of human concern. Now, when I think about widening that circle, it it means it doesn't necessarily mean that we're all going to get along. Right. <laughs> but, <laughs> but what it can mean is that we learn how to not get along in a way that is not um, enforced by violence, by dehumanization, and by taking uh, away people's uh, right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So, um, I, you know, I really believe that Tribes are beautiful. Um, our affinity groups are beautiful. Uh, the invitation for me is, you know, to me or the invitation, I think, to um, the world that I'm offering through the book is not that we throw away our tribal identity, but actually recognize that our tribal identity can usher us into holding other people's identities as well so that together we can create some shared humanity. Beautiful. You and I had a conversation once about uh, about polarization and the disappearing middle. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, meaning those who, who don't define themselves as all left or all right are quickly, you know, we, we are quickly judged. Uh, it's so easy to get on Twitter and just blast folks, right? Um, and therefore, you know, that sort of middle voice or that, that uh, uh, ex, you know, person exploring or questioning or wanting to learn or who's, who's practicing inquiry is pulling back, becoming more silent, less civically engaged. I have noticed that. You and I have talked about that. It's too risky, right? It's too hot in the kitchen. So you, you talked about protecting the radical middle in the book, uh, which is a, it really hit home for me. And you describe that as a place where we hold different identities without breaking, mm -hmm. which is just beautiful. Talk about that a little bit. And, you know, of course, I, I am selfishly asking this a bit because I, I mean, believe me, I'm, I get, uh, you know, as ALF being a, a nonpartisan uh, organization that wants to make the tent bigger, it's becoming a harder and harder space to hold. But I feel so critical and important right now. So how do you how do you defend standing in the middle when some believe that bridge building stands in the way of justice? You know, my commitment to the radical middle is has less to do with proof that the radical middle will get us to short term wins. And my commitment to the radical middle is actually a deeper commitment to a sense of values and what I believe will get us to the long-term solution. Um, I think the short-term engagements that are fueled by tribalism, uh, they bring a cathartic release of sorts. Uh, we get wins around policies. We get wins around campaigns for people that are engaged in partisan work. They get a win for their particular political party. Maybe if you're inside your company, you're able to get your initiative past the line and someone else's you know, doesn't get past the line. But that zero-sum game, uh, I think, suggests that there has to be winners and there has to be losers. And and uh, it's, to me, not the best of who we are as human beings. I think the radical middle is important uh, because 
most people in our country, in the United States, actually live there. I mean, this is what the data actually shows, that the loudest people in the room aren't always the people that are really holding the consciousness of the larger society. And so I think we need to have those who are actually willing to do the important and hard work of humanizing people who have different experiences and finding ways to bridge people together, not for the purpose of domination, colonialism, or or just the implementation of my own ideological perspective, but I'm willing to hold the radical middle to contend for how we move forward together. And even if that means that our progress is slower, I'd rather go slower and go together than go fast and leave others behind. You know, the, the lethal mass partisanship report said that 18%, I think they did this study back in 2016, 2017, no, it was 2019, uh, that 18% of uh, Republicans said they felt that the country would be better if the majority of the Democrats just died, right? But 22% of Democrats <laughs> said that they believed that the country would be better if the majority of the Republicans just died. What does that say to me? That one out of five people in America are already in a pre-genocidal moment where they're already saying that I may not be the person who kills them, but I'm okay if somebody kills the rest of the people in my country, the people I work with, the people I worship with, the people I go to the amusement park with, people I go to the movies with. Somebody can kill them because I feel like the only way that I'm going to have safety is if the people who disagree with me don't have it. And the reason I think we need folks in the radical middle is to be the people who say, actually, that's not what we believe. That's not the country we want to live in. And we're willing to do the work that humanizes both Democrats and Republicans, CEOs and somebody who's working on the line, somebody who has resources and somebody who doesn't. We're going to humanize them both and we're going to find ways to widen the circle of human concern where both of them are humanized, whether it's the police officer and the young black guy that's got the hoodie on, we can create a world where both of them are humanized. It might mean that different people are going to have to respond to some different invitations to think about how they give up some of their power and privilege to get more humanity back. But the notion that we're going to live in a zero-sum game and some people are expendable and others are not is something that just has to be off the table. And I think those committed to the radical middle, that's going to be our job over the next century. Yeah. Convergence and Citizen Solutions just announced a partnership. Mm. These are uh, firms back east, and they put out a survey, results of a survey, that showed, you know, the percentage of Democrats and the percentage of Republicans that believe in, you know, uh, free speech and, you know, that we all want a safe community, that, you know, all these different markers, and we're practically the same. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, it's it's right there. The data is there. The challenge is, how do we get there? And I think in the past, we've had people from the back corners of the quadrant instead of the radical middle really being the folks to lead that conversation that suggests, well, the only way if you're from this community that you're going to get safety, you're going to get good education for your kids, access to healthy food and a safe uh, climate to be able to pass on to your grandchildren is if these other people who are monsters, demons and against you, if they have no power. And I just think we're, we've got to challenge that ideology in a moment right now, because the sickness that we have in this country that keeps us from holding on to our human connection to one another is not just a problem on the left or the right. It's it's on both parts of the you know political ideo ideological spectrum. It's creeping its way into every sector of life, private, public, cultural, social change. And so I think 
many of us are going to have to take little steps, not huge ones, but little steps to reverse the tide of this. And similar to what Mother Teresa says, you know, no one person can cure world hunger. But if every person who had a piece of food gave a piece of food to someone who didn't, we collectively could cure world hunger. My orientation towards belonging is the same way. One of the pull quotes on your website, and it's prominent throughout your book, which I love, is not what do we need to do, mm -hmm. but who do we need to become? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have a bias towards jumping to solutions, mm -hmm. right? We don't sit in the discomfort very long and discover and, and, and consider our, ourselves, our assumptions, right? Who did you need to become mm -hmm. to engage in this work? Failure. <laughs> that's, that's how I got there. Um, getting my, uh, you know, one, one of my uh, community euphemisms, chin checked. You know, I think I got, I got hit enough times, not physically, but having to, to have my pride checked and be humbled through failure is really what caused me to slow down. Um, like many people that are listening to this, I care very deeply about other human beings. I'm, I'm kind of wired that way, probably maybe even a little bit sometimes too much, but I'm really dialed into how other folks are doing. And I, I care deeply about uh, the larger um, polity. And yet uh, I found myself at times that learned behavior and existing stories, biases that I had was causing me to show up in ways where the uh, impact was not my intent. I was, I was finding times where, you know, things, choices that I was making wasn't creating the kinds of solutions that I wanted to be on the back end. And I had to keep, you know, engaging in that until over the course of time, one of the things that I started learning was that I actually needed to not enter spaces as a leader, but actually learn how to go into spaces as a learner and wait for an invitation to lead if such an invitation would ever come. And that the more that I was willing to slow myself down uh, and, and humble myself, I started realizing that my ability to spot a problem doesn't always equate to my ability to solve one. Mm -hmm. And that if I would be willing to slow down and figure out who I needed to be in that story. And sometimes it might be to bring a solution. Sometimes it would just be to be present. Sometimes it would be to follow. Uh, sometimes it would be to lead. But what I found was that by slowing myself down, not only could I show up better in the problems around me, I actually could sustain it within myself because running around like a firefighter for every problem you see in the place that you work and your family and the place where you play was untenable for me. And so, you know, I think I had to really, and I'm still in this constant work of unlearning the, you know, kind of hustle and flow energy that I think just comes from a hyper-capitalistic environment where time is commodified and, and, and all of that, I just really had to recognize slowing down, becoming, reflecting um, really is a, a power source that I needed to tap into. And that the more that I could get connected into myself and work on myself, the more I would have to offer when it was time to offer. I think the other quick thing I just would say was I really had to let go of the messianic complex uh, that I had that, you know, sometimes, you know, some of us get it from religious uh, orientation. Some of us get it from the big epic and, you know, uh, hero, shero tales that we have in our American zeitgeist. But I had to really realize that I was not showing up 
to my engagements with other human beings as a messiah or a hero, but but actually I was just showing up as a human. And and that the relationships that I would forge would invite me on how I should show up. And that I didn't have to be the the star of every story. Um, and that I actually didn't even have to be in every story. So for me, this has just been an ongoing journey of um, hopefully learning how to be in community with others in a way that uh, leaves the world a better place. So well said. You know, speaking of, you have a chapter in here about radical self-care, mm-hmm. which I, I very much appreciated because uh, God knows this is hard work. Mm-hmm. This is, And it's constant. It's constant learning. Um, you know, one thing I've been working on personally and just talking in professional circles about is this, this concept of justified anger and that, uh, you know, we all have reasons, some more than others, <laughs> to be pretty pissed off right now, right? Uh, to carry that anger, to feel betrayed, to feel fear for living in this country at this time. And, you know, for those recovering from, from addiction and part of the 12-step tradition, it's um, holding on to justified anger is, is the kiss of death. I mean, that is actually talked about in, in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12-step uh, literature about it threatens your sobriety, right? And even for the rest of us, it is, it can be spiritually and physically debilitating, right? So with all that you've seen and all that you hold, how do you deal with and let go of anger? You know, I think there's been a lot of different steps that I've been taking over the last several years to hope that um, some of it for me has been to really um, practice joy, as an actual spiritual practice, uh, not religious, but spiritual in the sense that uh, I recognize that one of the ways that I can honor myself and take good care of myself is to surround myself with things that bring me joy, surround myself with people that bring me joy, surround myself with experiences that bring me joy. Uh, that that's one of the ways that I help to counterbalance this justifiable anger, or at least the, the, um, uh, the ways in which, you know, uh, the things that are happening in the world, the news cycle can continue to cause trauma and injury. Uh, I've also had to adjust practices uh, that I've had around social media, around the news cycle, around ways that we um, participate with information. Uh, because, you know, I think in the advent of social media, one of the negatives of it has been that we live on a 24-hour news cycle. We have access to so much information and more information than our brains can process in a healthy way. And so when we're just being peppered with things that are breaking our hearts over and over that we have no capacity or proximity to change, I think it really can lead some of us to a place of deep overwhelm, burnout, that's just not sustainable. Uh, and so for me, I'm, I am um, as angry about the fact that injustice and dehumanization is present within our world. Um, I've also, but I've had to make some new practices around joy. And I've also made a decision that instead of kicking at the darkness, uh, I'm going to make the light brighter as a way to process and channel my anger. And so rather than spending so much time focusing on the things that make me angry, I channel that energy towards, well, how can I begin to engage with uh, people, relationships that can actually help me move the thing that's making me angry towards a direction that actually makes me hopeful, makes me healed, makes me have joy. 
Uh, and, and, you know, I know at times there's some people that say, well, you know, we've got to deal with the problems uh, face on. I, I disagree with the notion that choosing joy, choosing self-care, choosing hope is an irresponsible way to process anger. Uh, I would invite people to really reassess the way that they have developed sometimes maybe an unhealthy relationship with anger and really ask themselves, is it getting you what you want? Is it getting us what we need? And if not, maybe there's another way that we can respond to that um, that still is faithful to what we should be upset about, but actually helps to build the world that we want. I love that line, being faithful to what, yeah, what we're upset about. Mm -hmm. It's there, Mm -hmm. right? But how do we ensure that we've got the resilience and capacity to respond, right? Yeah. 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 And to move through the world. And, you know, along those lines, what responsibility do we have to tend to our wounds Mm -hmm. that aren't yet healed? That whole concept, you know, that Sean Jenright talks about in the four pivots, Mm -hmm. that was so powerful to me Mm -hmm. that, you know, and, you know, I've heard... I've heard the argument that that's victim shaming or victim blaming, but truly, you know, what I come back to for my own spiritual practice is, you know, we can keep eating the rat poison and waiting for the rat to die, but guess what? You right. know, You're right. it's us. Yeah. It's we're getting eaten up. Well, and I mean, here's the deal. We've got a lot of things going on in our world that are making lots of us angry and frankly are making many of us afraid. Uh, you know, I was talking with some um, industry leaders in San Mateo in the Bay Area in California um, a little bit earlier this year. And I remember we got done. We were talking about this idea of belonging. And a white sister came up to me and she said, Ben, I am I'm all the way with you. And yet I am terrified at the fact that the government is now saying that it's going to have control over my body and that I'm not going to have control over my own body. And how do I hold on to these aspirations of belonging and bridging across difference where I feel that my physical body, that someone is contending for the ownership of my physical body. And I remember just standing there and tears flooded her eyes. And I recognized in that moment, like, this is a real thing. This, what she was talking about wasn't ideological. It wasn't theoretical. She was talking about a real uh, thing that is not just making her angry, but also making her afraid. And so I think one of the things that we're going to have to really work on and really get muscle memory around is how do we hold space for one another? How do we give space for the anger, but don't stop there? That's the invitation for me. Let's not stop at the anger. We've got to find ways uh, to move it towards a constructive way of widening the circle of human concern. And what I told her, as I said, listen, I want to figure out how to widen the circle of human concern that ensures that you, who are terrified about the government having uh, rights over your uh, body, that that gets changed so that you have the agency that you need to have over your physical body. I said, I also want to figure out how we have the circle that's big enough for the person who has a different perspective and point of view about this idea um, that thinks that the government should to recognize that the government should not because that is a damaging of your person. But we also can figure out how do we make sure that that person doesn't get thrown outside the circle of human concern as well, Um, that we have different points of view and that we've got to really find ways to uh, make sure that the laws and the systems and the structures give everybody that agency. It's easier said than done. And the fact of the matter is there's some people that want to become violent 
in order to dominate the conversation. But I think if more of us can find ways um, to hold on to each other and actually to close our proximity to each other across difference, uh, I think some, you know, to me, proximity and relationship has more influence than um, just passing laws alone if we're really going to get to the long-term change. People show up differently because of the people that they know and the people that they love, not because of the talking points they hear at six o'clock at night on cable news. A couple more questions, Ben. I, we could go on. You have, a, you have a line in your book about, you know, having a shared understanding of history and that acknowledging historical facts, right, our stories, is a part of creating empathy and belonging. And I have to say, I get this question regularly in ALF. Suzanne, how do we have dialogue with? How do we build bridges with those who believe in alternative facts? Right? And in last week's example, uh, you know, those who are, who are actively trying to omit history through book banning and whitewashing curriculum. I mean, every day, right, with the news, we're getting hit by something. Where do we begin? How do you, how do you hold that? Yeah, I mean, it's a... It's a Important and heavy question. And I would say with bridging, one of the things I've heard Dr. John Powell say often from UC Berkeley's Other and Belonging Institute is that you can't build a bridge everywhere. And I think that's an important thing for us to hold, <laughs> that while bridging is something that we are aspiring for, um, you can't build a bridge everywhere. But just because we can't build a bridge everywhere doesn't mean we can't build bridges some places. So the question is, where am I most likely to build a bridge? And let me start there. One of the other invitations for us to think about is short bridges versus long bridges. Mm -hmm. So there's some destinations that won't take a long time to do the bridging work. But then there's some conversations that's going to take years and years of bridging work. Also, uh, bridges are built at different elevations. And if a, if a bridge is built just to get across a stream, you use certain amounts of time and construction and materials. But if a bridge is being built from one side of a region, say, for example, take the Bay Bridge is coming up in my mind. That takes going underwater and deep investment and higher levels of risk. So I think with bridging, we've got to hope that some people um, we're not going to be able to build bridges with. Um, all of us are not. I don't think uh, going to do the same thing. We need to do the things that are within our reach to do. But I have big hope stories. Like there's a story I think I touch on in the book with uh, Desmond Mead, who was a formerly incarcerated um, black man who uh, was a progressive. And he bridged with a white formerly incarcerated brother in Florida named Neil, who was a conservative. And they worked together to restore the uh, right to vote for 1.4 million Floridians in 2016. And they enfranchised both Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives who needed the right to vote back. And that meant that they had to have conversations with people who had Confederate flags on their porch and then also people who had Black Lives Matter flags on their porch. Now, it's, I'm not making a false assumption that somehow Confederate flag and Black Lives Matter flag are, 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 are equal symbols. But what I am holding was they made a decision that they could bridge with different groups of people and figure out how to have those messages. So they built some long bridges at some really high elevations. That doesn't mean that's what all of us have to do. So I really invite people to start with the bridges that you feel are 
attainable. Maybe it's within your family. Maybe it's within the team that you work with. Maybe it's with people that are in your neighborhood or people that uh, you worship with based upon your religious practice. Start where you are proximate, build muscle, and then expand from there. Love it. Love it. The book is called Troubling the Water, The Urgent Work of Radical Belonging by Reverend Ben McBride, due out October of 2023. Ben, thank you so much for being a friend Mm -hmm. and uh, partner at American Leadership Forum and count us in for all of it. Thank you, Suzanne. ALF joins and strengthens diverse leaders, creating and supporting networks for good. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and encourage you to subscribe to The Dialogue on iTunes or SoundCloud. To learn more about ALF, visit us online at alfsv.org. This episode of The Dialogue podcast is made possible by the ALF Silicon Valley Network. With a special thanks to our Leadership Circle members, Lisa Sonsini and Randy Pond, and our 2023 Exemplary Leadership Celebration sponsors, Becky Morgan, Silicon Valley Community Foundation, HP Inc., Sobrato Philanthropies, Silver Lake, Destination Home, Class 17, and Silicon Valley Business Journal. Thank you.